Support for America Made Easy and the following message come from Nuable Levitas, the transatlantic joint venture supporting ambitious SMEs was setting up in the United States. We help make entrepreneurs' lives easier by providing an operational solution for their U.S. expansion strategies so they can focus on driving revenue and doing what they got into business to do in the first place. Hello and welcome to the America Made Easy podcast, the bi-weekly show where we help international SMEs tackle the complexity of setting up and growing their business in the American market. I'm your host, Morgan Pierstorff, and on today's episode, we are exploring American culture and the nuances to conducting business and managing U.S. team members that international firms might overlook. We will also be discussing the do's and don'ts of successful business engagements in the U.S. so that international investors can avoid common pitfalls that will save time and money in the long run. Today, I am joined by Allison Stewart-Allen, founder and CEO of International Marketing Partners. Allison is a renowned advisor, author, speaker, and educator whose expertise in brand internationalization is sought by leading businesses globally through her consultancy, publications, appearances, and corporate education. Allison now advises boards of directors and corporate leaders in the services, luxury, retail, travel, hospitality, and industrial sectors, to name just a few. Her expertise enables firms to lead across cultures, achieve marketing and business development strategies, integrate acquisitions, and build their corporate diplomacy skills. Allison has advised more than 200 businesses in 26 countries. She holds a bachelor's degree in international business from the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California, as well as an MBA from the Drucker School at Claremont Graduate University. Allison is co-author of the best-selling book, Working with Americans, the first ever business manual exclusively about U.S. business culture, which helps professionals improve their relationships with and profits from American business partners, bosses, and colleagues. Welcome back to the America Made Easy podcast, Allison. Thank you. Thank you. We are very excited to be doing a deep dive into culture. It's something that is so often an afterthought for companies, unfortunately, when it comes to planning and executing their global growth. I'm curious why you think that is and and really what's at risk for firms that don't acknowledge the link between their success and translating the business culture with their overall success in that market? So I often frame that question as how much does ignorance cost? Uh, Because if you think about the cost of not knowing a place, the assumptions that you make about the U.S., how it works, how similar or not it is to the U.K. or any other uh, market that you're, uh, you're based in, uh, you know, the costs are unbelievably high of not understanding. So you potentially sour uh, relationships with business partners, joint ventures unravel because of the assumptions that are made about the relationship. Some parties are explicit about it. Other parties are implicit about it. Uh, and so I think you're, you know, I, I often <laughs> describe this as um, fish don't know they're in water. Mm. You know, you need to take fish out of the water to breathe air for them to realize just how different air is. 
so that when they're back in the water, they have an appreciation of difference, what it feels like. Uh, and therefore, that awareness raising means that they're that much more interested in getting it right. So I think, you know, having uh, left the U.S. myself 31 years ago uh, to move to the U.K., I'm uh, now the fish that's been out of the water for a while. Certainly. I go back to the water. Uh, but, you know, in, until I did that, I wouldn't have fully appreciated just how significant the cultural differences are. And seeing so many companies, clients of mine that have uh, made assumptions about the U.S. market being really similar to the U.K., for example, and then finding that, you know, deals don't go through or partnerships aren't cemented, uh, customers aren't won, all really because of the assumptions that they've made. So it is so important to get this stuff understood because then you can plan around it. Uh, but just going in without testing uh, how you think things work uh, is is destined to fail. Hmm. I like that. Be, be a fish out of water. I think that's important um, because we talked to a lot of companies and they haven't put boots on the ground yet. And what perspective can you have um, until you've done that, to your point? Uh, so it sounds like, you know, culture is the starting point for any global expansion discussion. Would you say that's fair? I think it's very fair. I mean, I... Um uh, Peter Drucker, who uh, was the Austrian business guru, uh, he wrote several books. He died in the early 2000s. Uh, but I, I, having him as my professor, as it happens, I remember him saying uh, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and that's absolutely the case. You know, if you, if you have a great plan, uh, it'll, will, it will definitely not work if the culture isn't understood and that plan's not been adapted for the culture, because fundamentally culture is values. Uh, it's about what's important in uh, a different part of the world uh, when we're talking about national culture as we are now. Uh, so if you don't understand what you know the British value in business or the French value or the Americans value, the chances are very high that you're going to uh, do business the way uh, that you do it in your home country. And then you're going to be tested and find that all of the values that you think are really ma really matter and are important actually don't matter at all uh, in the U.S. potentially. So that's why uh, you have to have a plan and you've got to test that plan uh, in the context of what do these customers and clients in the U.S. care about? Have we aligned our value proposition to what they care about. And once you've done that, your chances of success are significantly enhanced. Hmm. And in that way, would you say, you know, that the business strategy and these cultural considerations are self-reinforcing? I mean, can they be working at, at cross purposes? And, and how does a company come to establish the right balance while still prioritizing the business need? Yeah. So I think you get the right balance through iterations. So it isn't a sort of overnight, you know, let's fix this for the U.S. market. It's a learning activity, and it's uh, going to take a few, uh, you know, cycles of improvements. It's going to take experimentation. Uh, it's going to take uh, test and learn, uh, fail fast, fail often, as uh, we say in Silicon Valley. Uh, and, you know, part of uh, doing well in an overseas market, or a key part of doing well, is learning. So in some ways, it's not just about uh, adapting to the culture of the U.S. It's also about your own organization being interested in learning and being interested in experimentation and integrating the 
the changes and the insights into the, and bake it back in to the product or service for the U.S. market. But, you know, some companies don't do that. They uh, just assume, well, yes, we've learned a lot, but we can teach them to like our product or service in the U.S. Well, that's fantastic <laughs> if you've got um, a blank check uh, and time is uh, not uh, that important because you're going to have to educate the market uh, otherwise mm-hmm. about your product, your category, uh, and therefore it's just such a quicker win if you adapt your product or service to the U.S. market because then you're hitting the ground running. You're not fighting against people or customers or clients that don't know really what you're selling or why you're selling it Mm -hmm. uh, because it's expensive to educate them. So why not already go in uh, on a high saying, look, we've done our homework. We know how evolved the U.S. market is or isn't. And therefore, this is our package that we're offering to, you know, Americans Uh, And we know this is going to work because we've done the research and we've localized it for the culture. Mm -hmm. And getting to that, you know, uh, fail fast, fail often. It's why it's so important to have the management at your company fully engaged. You know, maybe you're setting in your director of finance or strategy. Uh, you you know that you have to have that buy-in from the head of the company because um, it's really, in some cases, this adaptation is transformational in, in many ways. And that's a challenge. It is a challenge, and it could potentially cost money. I mean, it's an investment, but it's an investment worth making because once you uh, become a learning organization and culture and you're willing and ready and able to absorb what changes you're going to need to make for the U.S. market, it makes it that much easier to then make changes for any other market because you've already done it once. Uh, So in a way, you've gone up a learning curve uh, in discovering what needs to change for uh, for the states, And why wouldn't you want to replicate that learning process for any other market around the world? So it's an investment well worth making that Mm. you can amortize uh, across all of your international markets, not just the U.S. Mm -hmm. You you pointed out already earlier in the conversation that there are so many things that unify us and, and, and make the U.S., you know, an ideal market for UK firms to expand to, but that sometimes the opportunity and those similarities quickly blur the challenges and the differences. Um, as, as an American who, as you said, has been living in Europe for, for three decades, can you distill down for our listeners the heart of these differences at a high level? Yeah, I can actually. So <clears throat> one of the things uh, about the U.S. Uh, business culture is that it's task-oriented. What does that mean? Well, in the cross-cultural parlance uh, and the world I live in, in translating uh, this for uh, people that aren't uh, cross-cultural geeks, uh, the task orientation basically means Americans want to get straight down to business. We're focused on the task, on getting the job done. Uh, and and actually, often to uh, the detriment of building a relationship with our counterparts. Uh, so other business cultures are much more relationship-focused. Uh, it's more important for them to build a rapport with your counterpart, get to know their philosophy, their view of the world, uh, their day-to-day lives before you get down to negotiating. Whereas in the U.S., we want to get down to negotiating as fast as possible, (laughs) lock you in uh, so that you don't negotiate with anybody else but us. Uh, And uh, and so that's one of the key differences that you find. So for Latin Europe, for example, so France or Spain, Italy, Greece, uh, we find that those countries, even Middle East, Africa, 
uh, definitely prefer the rapport building first. So we're not going to get into any contract negotiations or detailed conversations about the deal on the table until I feel I know you, I like you, we're simpatico in terms of our views and attitudes, and then we can do business because we know each other. Uh, so that's one characteristic that defines uh, the U.S. business culture. I think another one is the emphasis on the individual as opposed to the team. So what do I mean by that? If you're leading uh, any American employee or counterpart working with them, we want to know that our unique individual contribution to the effort is recognized. So we're celebrated for the talents that we're bringing to the organization or the team. Uh, you know, we're, we win awards, we get a bonus, but we have to be acknowledged uh, individually for what we bring to the party. Other business cultures find that absolutely uh, incredibly difficult to do because mm -hmm. the team defines who you are. Uh, you are part of the team. You aren't just an individual that happens to be on a team. So if I think about uh, some of the clients I've worked with in Japan, uh, it's all about the team. So when the team's successful, everyone on the team is uh, rewarded equally. Whereas in the U.S., you might be on a team, but as an individual, your efforts get the big bonus or the big employee of the month award mm, or whatever right. it is. So that's yet another characteristic that's quite different uh, in the States to many other parts of the world. And I guess the, f the one more to, to add is about the fact that we're quite explicit rather than implicit mm -hmm. as, as communicators. So what that means is really what you say is what you get with Americans. Generally, what we say is it. You know, that is the message. There's no other meaning around the message. We're not implying something by what is not said. Uh, so uh, American English has evolved. It's quite an, um, it's a functional tool. Uh, if you think about our history, the fact that we've absorbed millions of immigrants, it's become that uh, out of necessity. If you compare that to British English, which is much more high context, much more implied, there's a lot of meaning in what is not said uh, in the UK. You know, if we were having a job, doing a job interview right now, uh, and uh, we had just met uh, uh, somebody, John, let's say, you know, we'd have a chat about, you know, does John get the job? And if you were a Brit, you'd say, oh, yes, John was very nice. <laughs> so I would think as an American, fantastic, we're going to obviously offer John the job. Yeah. Uh, but actually, we won't offer him the job because you left something out. You said he was very nice, but you didn't say he was really smart. Mm. Or, yes, he's fantastically capable you know, you didn't say that part. So I have to now listen for omission, which uh -huh. is the important. Poor John. <laughs> Poor John. You know, so, yeah, I think uh, the explicit example. implicit is, is another uh, challenge that faces many UK companies. Well, and I think that all three of those are really great kind of um, foundational elements of, of the business culture, which, you know, you, I, we could go on and on and on, of course, uh, because it isn't um, as, as simple as distilling it down to just these differences you've outlined, of course, or one or two tendencies or traits, um, which is why you've written a book about it, <laughs> of course. Um, you're the author of Working with Americans, which is now in its second edition. Can you give our listeners a glimpse into how you approach these challenges in your book and, and why it, it's um, really you know far too deep of a topic to simply cover on one podcast episode? <laughs> 
Well, I think we wrote it uh, because both my co-author, Lainey Denslow, and I were finding many international business people scratching their heads about how come the Americans seem really different to all of the assumptions that we have. Uh, they're not really European. They're not really Latin. Uh, they're not really African, Middle Eastern. You know, how do we figure out this, this mixture uh, of the culture? So I think uh, what we tried to do was give, and have tried to do, is give lots of insights about what makes us tick. You know, if you're trying to win business or grow a business or manage bosses or business partners or even employees in the U.S., uh, what we're trying to do is help demystify what drives us. You know, what are the rules of American business? Uh, and so we talk about things uh, like win-win uh, as the operating game theory, uh, which is critically important, which has to be set up at the beginning of any potential deal so everyone feels that they have a stake. Uh, and I guess uh, another key one is thinking about the fact that if there is a national religion in the U.S., it's Darwinism. <laughs> you know, we're all about evolve or die. Mm. Uh, and we truly believe that business is a, has a, an inherent mechanism to flush out mediocre businesses. Uh, if you're a strong, evolving, innovating company, you will survive and you will be successful and you'll be around for a while. Uh, and if you're not evolving and innovating, then you will disappear and rightly so. So explaining how these different mechanisms work, explaining the values and the rules uh, is something that we've tried to do. And from the readers that we've had from the first edition of the book and the reviews we've had, uh, we seem to uh, have uh, helped a number of companies save a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, and embarrassment. And, and do you find that this really holds true regardless of the industry, regardless of whether you're a product company or a service company, that these cultural issues should be given the same consideration and weight in boardrooms across the UK? Uh, I would say they, they should, uh, because really our book is the 30,000-foot view of the U.S. business culture. You know, uh, we do get uh, to lower elevations in different chapters, uh, looking at some regional differences. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, pretty much everything in the book applies regardless of whether you're a B2B, a B2C uh, business, uh, and, um, you know, what, regardless of industry. You know, there are certain rules for how you win uh, in the U.S. Uh, that transcend uh, those specifics. Mm -hmm. And what is at risk here? Can you perhaps provide some examples um, of how UK firms or other international firms have gotten it wrong in the States and, and what they could have or should have done differently to be successful? Yep. There are many, many stories. Um, I'll just choose one. Uh, so there was uh, the foray that the British uh, grocery chain Tesco uh, had when they tried to grow uh, in the U.S. on the West Coast uh, with a brand called Fresh and Easy. Uh, and they, I guess now in hindsight, intelligently called it that because it wasn't called Tesco America. And so when it flopped, it didn't taint mm. the mothership uh, and the Tesco brand as much as it possibly could have done. But um, so Tesco uh, Fresh and Easy uh, did a lot of research in the States, spent a lot of money building a warehouse, replicating a store uh, inside this giant sort of soundstage and tested everything, the produce, the, the carts, uh, the in-store lighting, the checkout uh, aisles, uh, all of this was tested. 
so they had a lot of data. Uh, and then they went live and opened some stores uh, in California. And those stores really didn't do very well. And uh, I happened to visit one of them uh, to try to you know, follow the media mm. story about, well, why is Tesco Fresh and Easy not a huge success? And what I found were a few things. First, I found that the uh, car park, uh, the width of this car parking spaces was narrower than most, uh, you know, shopping centers and grocery store uh, parking lots. Mm. So if you have a big SUV in the U.S., as many people do, <laughs> uh, you're not going to fit it between the lines. Yeah. Uh, you also had pre-packed produce. So the apples and the oranges and the onions mm. uh, were already pre-bagged, which, again, Americans generally don't shop that way. They right. choose each item to make sure they're not bruised or, you know, not uh, of good quality. Uh, and then uh, there was a bit of confusion around the merchandising strategy. So I recall the 99-cent ready-made mashed potatoes in the same chiller cabinet next to the $45 Veuve Clicquot champagne. Oh, my. And I thought to myself, what is the consumer profile <laughs> of the person that's going to have the 99-cent mash washed down with some really expensive French champagne? Some unique taste there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess part of it is about not listening or perhaps assuming, oh, we can change how they do things, uh, we're going to educate them, and uh, that didn't go so well. And there are countless other uh, mistakes that we could spend several podcasts talking about. I think what unifies all of these is the assumptions that are made, uh, the assumptions that you know what we might do in our home market, what we might do in the UK that works well, must automatically translate to the United States. And I can tell you that that is a very expensive uh, set of assumptions unless they're tested mm. and proven to be right. As, as they learn the hard way. So Absolutely. Even, even the big guys can fail. <laughs> you bet. Um, so, of course, with any topic, there, there are common threads, there are best practices. But in your experience, is there a playbook to follow here? Or do you find that international firms have to work to tailor these considerations into their own unique uh, U.S. investment journey? So I, I think every company's got to do it their own way. I mean, I, you know, if I could just uh, ha wave a magic wand and say, here's the template, just do this, this will work. That would be great. That would be great. Uh, but, you know, each company has uh, its own routes to market. Uh, it's got its own industry sector and customer base that may will mean that certain things will have to uh, change. Uh, you know, uh, maybe if you're in the garment industry, you might need to adjust the sizing. Uh, if you're in the fresh produce industry, you may need to uh, think about organic uh, and GM or not. Uh, if you're in uh, mass market retail, you're going to need to think about uh, strip malls, which don't really exist in the UK. Uh, so there are, you know, your circumstances are driven by the industry that you're in. Mm -hmm. However, there are rules to how we do business. So back to the point uh, earlier about, you know, this 30,000 foot view, there are rules about uh, the win-win game theory. There are rules about being responsive. So Americans expect direct and speedy communications. Uh, there are rules uh, around incentivizing uh, people to take calculated risks uh, rather than be tentative or a bit too patient. Mm -hmm. uh, there are rules around um, give us the facts first and the theory later. We want we don't care about framing 
the data around a theory and then show the facts fit this theory. We just want the bottom line. What are the facts? Mm -hmm. So there are some uh, rules for how you win, which are going to apply to everyone. But when it comes to how you expand as a company in the States, there are so many permutations on the theme. You know, you might... Uh, choose a JV uh, or strategic alliance partner. You might build your own uh, operation organically. Uh, you might acquire a company in the United States. You may uh, shadow another company or a supplier, see how they do it, and then put your own operations in. I mean, there are so many, and, and there's, you know, versions of each of those themes. Mm -hmm. So I think the challenge is that the companies need to do a cost-benefit analysis. Right. What are the risks we can live with? What are the risks we can't live with? And depending on uh, which side of the equation uh, wins out, that should drive how you go to market. Mm -hmm. No, that's, I think, a very very helpful way to break that down, uh, to do their own you know, tailored cost-benefit analysis, because their industry is going to be different, and there are a lot of different ways to get from A to B, of course. Um, in addition to, to being a convener of this podcast and, and the expertise that we're bringing to the table here to have a meaningful conversation around U.S. investment considerations and planning, we're also providing a lot of advice for how to effectively implement um, within their investment strategies at an operational level, whether that be across recruitment, hiring, or, or streamlining the back office activities, um, and how American Made Easy can help them do this as they scale up in the U.S. market. So I'm curious if you might speak a little bit to the cultural considerations that our listeners um, may need to develop um, as they build up their on-the-ground infrastructure for a company in the U.S. Yeah. So I think what uh, companies need to recognize is doing everything from the U.K. is going to be expensive and in the long run often uh, just not a sustainable way to do do business in the US. So uh, I think what's key is finding, uh, you know, infrastructure partners that are going to help you be successful, because they have a track record helping others like you with your uh, business model. So it doesn't need to be in your sector. It's all about the business model because those uh, those infrastructure partners uh, are going to support the business model to win. So you know it could be uh, around staffing uh, and how, you know what kind of talent are you going to use and is it going to be on a permanent contract basis? Are you going to use plugged in uh, special? Uh, consultants or experts for a given period of time, uh, and having conversations with talent uh, management businesses that have uh, a, a ready route to plugging in the right expertise that you're going to need in the U.S. is absolutely the right answer. They also know uh, about pay and reward and the expectations that an American executive would have around bonuses, around uh, base salary, uh, around uh, inflation-based uh, pay rises, for example. There's also the back office uh, and IT uh, approach. You know, where will your data center be or where uh, do you want it to be? Because, of course, we now have GDPR in the UK. Uh, that has implications for where you're going to house your data about your customers and clients mm -hmm. as you acquire more Americans, for example. So there are uh, several uh, US-based companies, obviously, uh, that can help. Avitus obviously can be great advisors in uh, plugging 
bringing companies in to the best and the right resources for that infrastructure to make sure that while you're focused on getting the strategy executed mm-hmm. uh, at one level, on the on the other hand, you need operationally to be ready to succeed in the U.S. Uh, and there are no end of companies at the ready who can bridge the gaps and plug uh, the infrastructure gaps where you may not have them and where you may need them to be physically in the U.S. rather than in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as, you know, to your point earlier about trying to, you know, move quickly and take advantage of the market opportunity, uh, if you're trying to, as a company, think about building up your own infrastructure, replicating what you've t- what's taken years to build here in the U.K. in the U.S. market, it's just simply not efficient. Um, so, we really try to talk about um, opportunities to leverage in-market resources and expertise so that these business owners can focus on what they got into business to do in the first place, of course, and, and not be experts in HR or, um, or, or tax or whatever it may be. Uh, so I think that's a really important point. Now for a quick break. This week's top tip for the U.S. market is brought to you by Allison Stewart Allen, co-author of Working with Americans first ever business manual exclusively about U.S. business culture. One of the top tips for working with Americans is do it now. So Americans, while great planners, uh, we may seem to make decisions on impulse. In our rush to get things done and focus on the task, we may actually decide quickly uh, and worry about consequences later. Thanks, Allison. Our listeners can visit the book's website, workingwithamericans.com to download two free chapters and claim a 20% discount on ordering the book until December 31st, 2020 with the code WWA20. I wonder if maybe you could, you know, you've already shared some some great examples throughout the conversation, but uh, was also curious if you maybe had another international client experience that stuck with you, someone you've advised, um, that really illustrates why our listeners should think carefully about these topics we've covered. Yeah, uh, so um, I'm working at the moment with a specialized um, company that does courier uh, deliveries for the pharma industry. Uh, and uh, it has it's a subsidiary of a U- big U.S. Uh, company. Uh, and the challenges that they're having are around coordinating with their American head office. So how do they make sure... Uh, that, you know, there are regular uh, information sharing sessions, that we're all speaking the same language. Uh, And I think one of the things, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, One of the things about the U.S. is we want to be anchored in the future. So um, generally speaking, the culture is future-focused. We're about the the fantastic tomorrow versus the not-so-bad today, (laughs) but an even better future when we uh, get things right or when we serve our customers or clients better. And one of the challenges is that uh, you will, the Americans will get feedback on documents, for example, uh, that they send to their European uh, counterparts in this example with this company. Uh, and the European colleagues and UK colleagues will use track changes in their Word document uh, and highlight all of the things in the document that maybe are questionable. Did you really mean <laughs> this word here? Or uh, we're not really sure if this is the right uh, way to frame this issue. So the Americans get sent back a document full of red lines mm. and full of, you know, remarks 
But what they could get are both the remarks and the suggested fixes, like, are you sure you mean this here? Why don't you say blah, 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 because then uh, your, uh, your other colleagues in, in the U.S. will understand what you mean. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like going the, doing both suggesting what's wrong, um, which is helpful, <laughs> but going the next step and saying, and here's how to fix what's wrong, right. or here's how you could make it even better, do this. And I think that source of frustration is a really common one, especially if you have uh, a UK-US communication uh, dynamic Mm -hmm. where you're trying to align and the UK folks might think they're being really helpful in highlighting what's not great uh, about the document, but actually if they just did one more step and said, and this is the way to get it you know, to be perfect, uh, the frustration levels would subside uh, quite a lot. And this happens, I mean, this has happened too in the past with some of my legal clients that have U.S. and U.K. offices. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, document sharing uh, similarly has this red markup. And so I think that's one example of ways that it could be so much happier and smoother and and a lot better. Well, and it gets to your point earlier about the importance of being explicit with Americans, being very specific on on how to improve in this example you've given. Um, Well, unfortunately, we are approaching the end of this week's episode, which means it's time for our America Made Easy wise wise words segment, where we would ask for any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with, maybe anything we didn't cover um, yet in the podcast. Well, I guess in terms of wise words, um, I really like the phrase, it's better to be first than best. Mm. Uh, I think one thing uh, about the U.S. uh, approach is, you know, don't wait for perfection. Uh, don't wait till your product or service is 99.9% ready because you'll never get there. <laughs> Markets move, cu- consumer and client uh, tastes change. It's better actually to participate and act uh, and learn as you go and iterate while you're actually building market share uh, and learning than to wait till you've sought perfection. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think if there's one piece of advice then for the listeners uh, with us today, it's, you know, get out there. If you've got a 75, 80% market ready product or service, that's actually good enough. Mm. Get on with it. Make money. Build your brand name. <laughs> and frankly, you know, the customers or consumers uh, or clients that didn't have that fantastic service that you were hoping, that's okay because you can compensate them and you can engage them in your beta test group for iteration and version two and three, et cetera. So, you know, in a way, learning as you go is a, is a quicker and more profitable route. Uh, so that's probably what I would suggest is, you know, don't wait, just get on with it and, uh, you know, start making money and start participating in the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's an excellent tip for business and perhaps in life as well, Alice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for sharing all of the great content today and your expertise. Um, it's really been fun to speak with you for the second time now on the podcast, and we hope to have you back on another episode in the future. Thank you, Morgan. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to the America Made Easy podcast with me, Morgan Pierstorp. My guest this week was Allison Stewart Allen. Allison is co-author of the best-selling book, Working with Americans, the first ever business manual exclusively about U.S. business culture. To download two free chapters of her book, visit the website workingwithamericans.com. 
Our listeners can also order the book and claim a 20% discount with the code WWA20 until December 31st of 2020 via the publisher Rutledge's website. Check out the show notes for this episode for a link to both websites. This podcast is produced and edited by Morgan Pierstork and Rob Eastman in partnership with Newable Adidas. You'll find links to more information on this week's episode and how America Made Easy can help your business in the notes section of this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and introduce a friend. You can also write to us at americamadeeasy at newable.co.uk. Thanks for listening.